hey, hey, Corey, Anxiety Wad Podcast. So thankful you guys are here once again. I hope you liked the last episode with Kate. She's a very energetic, very passionate person about helping other people. Um, if you haven't checked that one out, go ahead and do so, man. That was a, that was a fun one to do. Um, hoping to have a few more guests on, but I, I think I'm going to bring her back on uh, in a couple months here and uh, have her come back around and, and tell her what's going on. It's a fun episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, for today, I got a couple of shout outs to begin with. Uh, if you guys don't know Logan Aldridge, he is the crossfitter that you see all the time. He's got uh, the, I believe it's his left arm that he still has about like six inches of his left arm. Uh, but he's the one that you see in competitions. He is part of, uh, I believe, Team some Assembly Required. I better check that out. I'm not for sure on that. But his handle is Aldridge, A-L-D-R-I-D-G-E, Logan. And I'll put it in the show notes here. But uh, he was someone that he had a wakeboarding accident back in 2004. Uh, very inspira- inspirational dude. He teaches a lot of seminar for adaptive CrossFitters. Uh, super nice guy. I got a chance to talk to him online here a little bit, and he's going to kind of spread the word of the podcast. So I wanted to give him a shout out. And if you're ever feeling bad about, you know, being dinged up or being injured or having a bad day, go check out that guy. I mean, he's made the most of his situation. Um, from what I've, I've read, he was in a wakeboarding accident where the rope kind of got tangled around his arm and it like pulled him into the propeller. And so, um, I think the, the rope actually went around and, and kind of, messed up his uh, arm enough where they had to amputate but man talk about making uh, lemonade out of lemons man that dude's super inspirational please go check him out and then the next one is someone that's gonna that i'm hoping to work something out for sponsoring the podcast it's called dream state meds and they're a cbd company and it is hemp cbd so it's going to be legal wherever you go and um they're sending me some samples to try out here, and CBD uh, does a lot for anxiety, and more so for the physical symptoms. It relieves nausea, relieves headaches and tingling, uh, makes you feel relaxed, relieves some muscle tension, which, you know, the the relaxation and the muscle tension, th- those are two main things that I would tune into for my anxious thoughts and my um, anxious tendency to focus on my physical symptoms. Uh, and that's a couple of things that CBD can help you with. Again, it's hemp CBD, so it's legal in all 50 states. The company is Dream State Meds. Um, I will post that in the show notes, but I also encourage you to go check them out on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you can find them. I will have a promo code that you guys can use to get a discount on products. So keep an eye out for that. Today, we're going to talk about how my anxiety developed, how do I handle my anxiety at work, and then how will alcohol or other drugs interact with my medication or affect my anxiety. Here we go. All right, so we know things are about to get serious because I have my Crocs on and the danger strap is flipped up in the back. So buckle your seatbelts, people. Nah, I'm just playing. So how did my anxiety develop? Um, It's a long story, but uh, I'll give you the abbreviated version. I was on my way out to California. Uh, I had had quite a few people in my life that had been sick with cancer. And for me, like I, I was never really sick and I never really had to worry about physical symptoms. I sprained a lot of ankles. Um, but I never really had anything major going on. It was at the beginning of when my neck started to act up. 
and I had a little bit of uh, neurological symptoms, but nothing major. I was uh, 22 years old. I had been saving money to move out to California to try out for the NFL, and I was staying in Denver, Colorado the first night driving out, and my mom and dad called me to tell me that my brother had cancer. And I think that was the epitus for the beginning of my anxiety. I was kind of in this midst of this huge transition in my life of, you know, leaving my family behind, moving out to California by myself, uh, uh, pursuing a very high stress um, endeavor of, of making it to the NFL, but also the thought of losing your brother to cancer because that's what I knew. Uh, my, my aunt passed away from breast cancer. My grandma died from leukemia and now my brother was next in my mind. And so I was about to turn around and come home, but, uh, luckily for me, they were smart enough to have my brother there and he got on the phone and told me not to come back home and he was going to beat it. And I, I listened, even though I was a little torn up inside. Um, I should note that I did not grieve the way I should have with my aunt and my, my grandma. And I mean, really like when you're, you know, a teenager and, you know, in college, do you really know how to grieve? I mean, does anybody really know how to do it? But I didn't do it the healthy way. I kind of bottled it up and I didn't know how to talk about it. And I, you know, it's some, I'm someone that struggles with explaining how I'm feeling. And so I think that had added enough weight to start the ball rolling downhill. Um, I moved out to California. Things were good. Uh, I was trying out. I was there for maybe a year and three months, a year and a half. And I had the major flare up with my nerve and my the lining of my chest with a condition called costochondritis, which feels exactly like a heart attack um, from, from what I've read. It was my first panic attack. And it was one of those things that was life-changing for me at the time because it was basically like I had a heart attack without the lasting damage done to the muscle of my heart. And so that feeling was something I had started to anticipate. And since anxiety is an anticipatory disorder, like you're anticipating doom and gloom, you're anticipating something bad happening, you're anticipating something coming that we fear. We're inducing the fight or flight response for something that we're creating in our mind. And for me, that was the physical symptoms. I was creating that stuff in my mind and it had started at that point. And so I came back, I think a couple weeks after that happened, because I just, it wasn't, something was off and I didn't know what it was because I had really never had a panic attack before. I'd been scared to the point of like your heart, you can feel your heartbeat and you're kind of sweaty, but nothing to that extent. And so I came home and trying to figure out what was going on with my body because it wasn't functioning right. And being someone that was, you know, pretty much an elite athlete, when your body doesn't function right, you know something's wrong. And it's like um, someone that's pregnant. They know in their heart if something's wrong with the pregnancy. I knew something was wrong with my body. And I had all these diagnostic tests. And I went to the specialists and I went to get um, trigger point injections and I got chiropractic and I got massage and I got all this stuff done and I still had no answers on what was going on. And so it left the space for me to draw all these just horrible pictures. And when I was doing that, I was believing the pictures I was drawing. And so it created the space for me to be anxious all the time. And in that space, 
was time. And, you know, I'm not that old, so there was the internet. <laughs> and so I spent time on the internet researching what it might be. I was trying to be my own best health advocate, like my wife explained when she was on, but I wasn't doing it in the right manner. I was looking for testimonials, and pretty much all that I found was either a heart attack, heart disease, uh, cancer. Like I, for, for the longest time, I thought it was either brain cancer or throat cancer because it was somewhere in like my thora like thoracic outlet syndrome is, is something that goes from your collarbone out to your shoulder and then down your arm. And I had some of those similar symptoms. So I thought that's what it was. And so I would go to the chiropractor and try to get it fixed and it would work for a little while and then it would come right back. And you know, the, the thing about it was with all that knowledge of all the crap that, that could be wrong with my body. I started to believe it and it's just like the mantras you think those things over and over long enough it becomes a belief and you know if you believe in manifestation i ended up having cancer i don't know if i did that to myself i i mean if if i was someone that believed in that which i do at some some a certain extent but did i really give myself cancer because i believed it long enough my body's like well all right we're gonna create this because you keep thinking about it i don't know and so it was all around physical health and all of that uh, space for me to create those stories that my anxiety started. And it was up until one of my trips to the ER that I went with my parents. Well, actually, I think I just went with my mom. Um, if, if you didn't know, my mom was a social worker, so she had some, some background in um, mental health. Not necessarily one-on-one, -on -one, but like in a family atmosphere. Um, personally growing up, she grew up in a really rough childhood. And so she, she had had some of that. So she could kind of relate to how I was feeling. One of the times we went to the ER, the, the attending physician gave us this booklet on anxiety. And so at that point, it was a real eye opener to what was going on in our lives. And we got more information. And once I got more information, that's when that perception of my life changed. I've said it a few times is that we can only perceive our life to the extent of the knowledge that we currently have. And in order to perceive our life in a different way, we have to gain knowledge. And so that's what I did. I started gaining this knowledge. I started developing these skills and, you know, I, I, I did it often enough that rather than that repetitive thought being about what was wrong with my body, it was like, this is what's right with my life. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what I value. This is how I'm going to create this lifestyle of figuring out relaxation through meditation, through ice baths, through saunas, through yoga, through whatever other outlet I could find, rather than just focusing on what is the answer to what's wrong with my body. Now, I still thought about that from time to time, but the development of those personal skills far outweighed the thoughts of the negative aspects of my life. When I was 35, which was, you know, 13 years later, I finally found out it was wrong. I hadn't broken my neck at one point. And once I had that answer, and if you haven't heard that story, I don't remember what episode I tell it in, but the abbreviated version is I had a really um, specialized MRI. I don't even know. He, I never remember it, but I had to drink this goo and it was like a live otoscope MRI type of thing. And that's probably not even a thing. I don't, I, I'm sorry, but anyways. So I drank this goo, they did this MRI, they checked nerve function, they figured out where it was coming from. They did this other kind of imaging that they found that I had a bone spur that was growing into my nerve and my neck. 
And so it was like, boom, here's your answer. It was nothing I expected. I broke my neck when I was 18. I didn't know about it until I was 35. And so that 17 year decline in my health had all these neurological symptoms that created this place for me to <laughs> freelance uh, what the outcome was going to be. So once I figured out what it was at 35, it was the same time, it's the same point that I found Miranda Oldroyd's story, um, Miranda Alvarez now, and of uh, street parking. She, she had posted her story about being in a car accident and how CrossFit basically saved her life. And I'm like, well, you know, I've done P90X, I've done Insanity, I've done Muay Thai kickboxing, I've done all these other things like, you know, guns and buns and, you know, bias tries, all that stuff that I've tried at the gym. It wasn't working, so I'm going to try CrossFit. What that did was got me around some really well-developed people that helped me push me farther into leaning into discomfort, building confidence in the gym, pushing myself like I used to do, and being around people that kind of um, give me a nudge in the direction of personal development, recommending books, recommending more knowledge so I could better perceive my life. And so the combination of the work that I did personally and the way that I was pushing myself in the gym with the support of the community is the overarching umbrella of how I learned to manage my anxiety. And so it's kind of a longer story about how mine developed. Um, so please ask, ask more questions. I could go on and on because there was so much more that happened in there with health and, you know, my, my, me and my wife and, and injuries and et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's the, the minor scale of what actually happened. You know, there's joint replacements, there's neck fusions, there's umpteen surgeries that I've had, but that's the main storyline of how it occurred. It was all based in, you know, the hypochondriac in me that is, you know, no longer there. Um, I've, I've learned enough over the years to understand when I need to worry. So, so I think that's good for that question. Uh, if you have any more, let me know, shoot me a, shoot me a DM or shoot me a, an email and I'll try to answer more of that. The next one up, how do I handle anxiety at work? Now, my anxiety used to be a lot worse. I was in a lot higher stress position. It was in an area of weakness, which my HR director is really good because he said, look at it as an area where you're not as passionate as other areas, which I really love. Like it's, it's yeah, it might be something I'm not great at, but I could be good at it. And I, I currently do something that I'm not great at, but I'm good enough at it that I can get by. But what I was doing before was, I was really overloaded, but my anxiety was really bad. And so how I would handle that is I finally, you know, mustered the gusto to talk to the HR director about it. And I remember the meeting because I was, I was in between, I was in this really small office. I think it was like a six by 12 office, which is like a prison cell, but I was in the midst of, of changing offices. And I remember having the meeting in there cause I was sweating so bad, but I, I was just, I was I'm still is on medication that I was, I was testing out medications and I finally told him, he's like, Oh, okay, good. I was kind of curious as what was going on. I wasn't sure. And I wasn't sure how to ask you, but I'm so glad that you told me because so much more makes sense. He also said, what do you need? And I was like, what? He's like, what do you need? Like, how can we help you get to a point where you can work and function and enjoy working here? 
and it was way different than I expected, which it usually is when you tell people about what you're going through is it's going to be way different than you expect, but what do you need? And I was like, wait, I can request things to help myself out at work. Fortunately for me, like we have a company that, you know, one of our core values is culture of opportunity. And so we, we develop ideas, we share them, we, you know, we, we work on them together. We bring them to the forefront and, you know, the culture of opportunity for me was how can we help you work in a space where you're safe and you're calm and you can relax. And, you know, and so we, we made a game plan and it really helped me get through that. Um, today, I think there's only a very small tasks that I do that do cause me anxiety. And, and it's more so the things that are larger and more ingrained in the inner child in me and that's speaking in front of a group and it's very common but the the uncommon part of it for me is all the physical symptoms that come along when I start talking and what I've started doing is I admit it openly when I start talking and I I've done it where I bring the group into my own <laughs> my my own coping mechanisms where I will say I want to I want to bring you guys in and and show you how to do something that helps me calm down and so I go over box breathing um, the other thing I do is I have them close their eyes and put their hands on their stomach I have them sit up really tall and I say I want you to push your belly button in as you inhale and let your belly button push your hand out as you exhale and I have them do it 10 times and while they're doing it I'm doing the same thing up on stage and and so I'm basically doing my own coping skills with the audience. They think it's part of the speech. Well, it's actually me calming my my nerves. Once I do that, you know, I I will be calmer. And I know the longer that I talk, the more calm I will be. But you know, like the heart rate goes down. I still kind of get really really warm. But the other thing that happens is like my bottom lip gets really straight. Um, there's a little bit of a vibrato or like your voice kind of sounds trembly, but it all goes away after about a minute or two because I, I, I over prepare. And so when you know your information, you're going to be a lot more confident, but at work for me, when I give speeches for work, those are the things that I do. Or I, I actually, uh, did a, a talk one time talking about, uh, my reading habit, how I developed a reading habit. And if you listen to the one way uh, episode. It's a quick tips. It's called one way. Uh, it's, I just had to figure out one way to become a reader. I always like label myself as someone who didn't read or was not a reader. Well, show me audiobooks, you know, and I, I crank them out like nothing. So, um, yeah, so handling it at work, you know, there's from the day to day, it's more stress. And I think everybody deals with that. But what you have to do is you have to figure out, just like he said, what do you need? Now, if you're not comfortable talking to your HR director about that, figure out what you need to cope in those high stressful situations. There's a gambit of things you can do. You know, if you have earbuds, do a little meditation before you do something that is stressful. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to sit on the floor. You don't have to take your shoes off. Just turn on a little meditation or some spa music that is really calming. Um, there's brain.fm. That's an app. They have one on there for relaxation. They have the one for focus. They have one for guided meditation. Do that stuff before you go into an anxious situation at work. If you have to have a very uh, crucial conversation with someone, make sure that you look around 
the different responses that you might see um, prior to going into the meeting. You know, like if they reply this way, I'm going to talk about this. If they reply this way, I'm going to talk about this. If they get upset, I'm not going to get upset. I'm going to let them say their piece because they can be upset because this is an uncomfortable situation. Now, if they get vulgar, if they get rude, if they get insulting, I'm going to reply like this. So over-preparing for those kind of conversations at work can really help you out and calm your anxiety because what happens with anxiety is it's the unknown. The unknown and unknowable sometimes can just crank us up and stop us from doing things because we think if we don't do it, I'm safe. I don't have to worry about something bad happening. I don't have to go into this and get demolished by someone that I know could make me feel a certain way. Well, if you're prepared, you're going to have confidence. When you go in with confidence, it's less likely that something unexpected might happen. If you think one unexpected thing might happen, think about all the other things that you're expecting going into the meeting. It should far outweigh that one thing. All the good, it's like looking at, you know, blue, blue objects versus red objects. You know, your focus will determine the outcome of that meeting. If you're going to focus on what might happen, it's probably not going to go well for you. But if you focus on, I'm prepared for A through Z, items that might come up, you're going to feel fantastic. You're going to feel confident. You may still feel nervous, but you should have some confidence on how prepared you are. And that's really, you know, that should go in for anything that you're going into that you're expecting to be anxious for. Like one of the best things you can do with anxiety is figure out what your triggers are. I've probably talked about that before as well, but figure out those triggers, write them down because as soon as you figure those out, then you can game plan for them. And when you can game, game plan for anxiety, the stuff that causes you general anxiety goes away. There's, there's, you know, less than a handful of things that cause me anxiety and I could prepare for each one of them. Now, the things that might pop up, I don't worry about them anymore because I do my morning routine long enough and often enough and on repeat enough that I know I'm going to be able to survive that stuff. You know, I've been through cancer. Now, if I wouldn't have been doing that morning routine, taking care of myself, getting to know myself, preparing for the darkness, that whole situation would have been entirely different in my own reaction. So prepare for the unexpected versus worry about it and avoid it. Prepare for it. You are far stronger than you can give yourself credit for most of the time. I'm here to tell you that you can come from that place of despair and no hope and become stronger than you ever imagined. Right now, today, coming from someone that was a hypochondriac, someone that was agoraphobic, that had panic attacks, general anxiety, that couldn't leave their apartment, I'm stronger today than I have ever been in my whole life, mentally. And I was close to playing in the NFL. So I promise you, you can do it if you work on it long enough. You know, from the, the, the abyss to out in the sunshine, that's, that's my story. I promise you, you can do this, especially at work. Find a buddy that you trust that can talk to you about that. If not, contact me. I will help you get through that stuff because I've, I've been through it. And I'm, I'm not an anomaly. There's tons of people out there that have been in the trenches that may still be in the trenches that are willing to talk to you. You know that birds of a feather flock together, you know? 
It's, it's like the camaraderie that you find in a CrossFit gym. People that have anxiety or mental health issues have the same thing. You know, I've never been in the military, but it's that camaraderie that other military people have with each other because they've, you know, mutual suffrage. It's the same thing in the military, service members, uh, people that have been in the trenches of mental illness, people that have suffered through CrossFit workouts. It's all the same thing. So find a buddy at work too. All right. Question three, how will alcohol or other drugs interact with my medication or affect my anxiety? Something I know very well. I was someone that used alcohol as a crutch. I didn't like the medications. And so I quit taking those and I went on to use an alcohol as that crutch. And I, I, I would drink from time to time with my um, anxiety medication, which was a horrible idea. When I work with people as a coach, with, for anxiety, I tell them to stop drinking. Reason being is it alters your body chemistry. And if you drink to excess, the feeling of a hangover is going to light you up and spark every single one of your anxiety feelings that you have about your body. It's going to give you high blood pressure. It's going to make you feel weird. You're going to feel a little dizzy. You know, you're going to be dehydrated when you're dehydrated, your body feels different. And so if you can remove that, to get healthy physically, it's going to be 100% better. I, I don't drink anymore. And it was probably one of the smartest things that I've done for myself in my recovery. And it's only been maybe a year and a half. You know, I was trying off and on. I, I struggled when I moved back home. All of a sudden there was all this underlying um, emotion that popped up. I wasn't expecting it, expecting it. And so boom, I grabbed that crutch once again and kind of started drinking to excess. And, you know, fortunately for me, uh, some people in my life helped me recognize that's what I was doing. And so it was like, yeah, maybe you just, maybe you just want to quit for a while. And I'm like, oh yeah, cool. I've never had a problem quitting. I've done it multiple times in my life. And it's just like, eh, you know, I'm 41 now. I got kids, you know, my, my son and my daughter understand that stuff. It's just, it wasn't something that was anything that was beneficial anymore. And so I was like, yeah, no problem. I'll just hang it up and see what happens. And so it's been about a year and a half now. And the, the difference of that, uh, when I used to drink with, uh, general anxiety medications, I'm, I'm slowing my, my talking down cause I'm going back to that point in my life. I would black out all the time. And anytime you black out, it didn't matter how much alcohol I had. Um, it would just black out mainly because of the chemical mixture of the anxiety medication and the alcohol. And so you want to be super careful. There, there are warnings on the medication to not mix with alcohol. I highly recommend you heed that warning. Not only is it, is it a chance for you to do something really stupid and possibly hurt other people when you black out, but it is not on the road to healing. It's counterintuitive to what you are actually taking the medication for. You're taking the medication to heal mentally. And so if you're drinking alcohol, it's not going to benefit you to get better. It's not going to help. I don't know of a person that can do that. And there may be some people listening, and I'm not talking about you. You may be the anomaly, but I've never been, never worked with a person that drank alcohol on anti-anxiety medications and felt great. Now that just might be my, uh, my experience working with people, but the people that I have worked with that have stopped drinking while they're trying to get healthy on their journey, 
all of them have said that was a great idea. And so take it for what it's worth. I know it's a big habitual change. It's a big social change. If you have social anxiety, it's easy to have a little drink and kind of loosen you up and have you calm down, but it's crutch. It's far more beneficial to push through that discomfort. It's called bravery. Doing something that you're afraid of and doing it anyways. Going to those social uh, situations now. Like I never really, I'm a very social person. But there have been times in my life where I was like, man, like when my anxiety is bad, I'm like, oh man, this is too much. I just would have another drink. But when I would stop and I would actually go to them, push through my own inner battle of thinking people are judging me or feeling that they can read what's inside of my head, you know, the illusion of transparency that I've talked about. When I would do that, it was a rep count. And the more I did it, and the more often I did it, the better it got and the more comfortable I got. And so you want to be super careful with drinking and anxiety. And like I said, it's probably not something you want to hear, especially if you enjoy the social aspects of drinking and you have a a healthy relationship with alcohol. I didn't, I was someone that crutched it. You know, it's, I've, I've stopped multiple times in my life, but I was someone that used it for both physical pain and emotional pain, which is just a terrible idea. (laughs) So, um, I'm laughing at myself. I'm not laughing at you, but the medication aspect of it is not something you want to mess around with. You know, they, if you don't watch anything about the mass shootings, a majority of those people are on some sort of antipsychotic or anti-anxiety or antidepressant or any kind of medication. Pretty much all of them have been on that at some point. Not saying that's the cause because it takes the person to actually do the act, but the tendency towards that scares me. And so my recommendation is always saying, just give it up for a while. Now, if it's a problem to give it up, that should tell you something. It shouldn't be hard to give it up for a while to benefit yourself. And so if it's super hard for you to give up, you might want to examine that part of your life. There might be a habit that has gotten out of control that if you can't give it up, you might need to. So again, I'm not judging you at all. I'm not, I'm not like sitting on my soapbox saying you need to quit drinking. A lot of people can have very, um, wonderful experiences with it and have, you know, a very healthy relationship with it. I'm just not one of them. And, you know, my wife will have like her two drinks on the weekend and be fine. <laughs> you know, so, um, I grew up mine was more like environmental. Like I grew up in sports and the college locker room and college football and having college football parties and all that crap. And so it developed a, a, a bad habit of drinking versus an addiction. And so it was the habit that I was like, well, you know, I just, I don't, I get tired if I have like one or two, it's, I don't really enjoy it. So I'm just not going to do it. So I hope that, uh, answers that question. But again, like the, the drinking part of it is difficult. I, you know, and I, I, I keep saying the same thing, but if you're taking other drugs, talk to your medical health professional, let them know what they are. If you're someone that is doing the, uh, you know, a lot of states have the medical marijuana, make sure to tell them. I'm not sure what the drug interaction is, but I can guess that it's probably not something that you want to practice very often of mixing, um, medication with any kind of other drug. So if you're on heart medication, 
um, you know, blood pressure medication, if you're taking pain medication. So Heath Ledger was on pain medication, he was on anti-anxieties, and he was on sedatives, and then he also drank. And that combination is when it ended up killing him. It wasn't that he took too many of them, it was the combination of those drugs. And so I think Brittany Murphy was another celebrity that did the same thing. With the, It was like a, um, a combination of a bunch of different drugs at one time. And so make sure you talk to your medical health professional. Be honest with them. Don't hide anything because if you hide it and you die or have a heart attack, I mean, you know, it's pretty high stakes to be lying to your medical health professional. So, it, and I struggled with this question a little bit because... You know, it's, you know, we have a taboo with um, addiction and we have taboo with mental health and I'm trying to play the, the devil's advocate or the, the person that's neutral about it. But like from someone that has made the life choice of just not doing it because I don't have a benefit to actually doing it, I want to be, I want to remain neutral, but the high stakes of drinking with anti-anxiety medication should be enough for you to put it down for a little while. And if you have a hard time putting it down, you might want to reevaluate your relationship with alcohol. So it might be a tough pill to swallow and I'm sorry for that, but I want to be honest with you. And I think that might be your best, best bet. And, and it's going to benefit you if you do like, you're going to get better faster. Now we have a lot of setbacks when we drink too much, you know, when you're hung over, you don't feel great. When I was hung over, it was the more often than not the time where I would grab an ice pack and put it on my chest. And so whoever I was dating at the time would know that I was super anxious because I was hugging an ice pack instead of them. So anyways, enough for that question. You know, I appreciate that question. It was, uh, <laughs> I rambled my way through it, but it was a good question. It's a great question. That's exactly why I started this podcast because I'm sharing my experience with what I went through with medication off and on for you know, 15 years. So yeah, appreciate it. If uh, you got a chance, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review and spread the word of the podcast. It's, it's really uh, starting to get out there. I can't believe it. I really appreciate it guys. I, I thank you. Uh, the exit wad for today is I want you to try to write out your personal values. Uh, and I shared that on one of the wads for personal values. And, you know, mine are, you know, wellness, health and wellness. Let me pull them up here quick. You know, family, optimism, positivity, love, humor, mental health, and personal development. And so there's seven of them. I, I had 10 at one point and it just got to be too long of a list. But if you need to, just go to Google and write down, uh, search personal values and see what pops up. But yep, that one works. Yep, that one works. They'll evolve over time. You know, some of the stuff when I started 15 years ago, it does I don't value it as much because my life has changed. I became a dad. I became a husband. Um, things in my life started to matter more than others. And so just start. Start writing them down. Say, these are where I feel today. And then visit them every morning. Say, this is what I value. It's going to make your decision process a lot easier in your life. It's going to help when someone asks you something to, that you're not comfortable doing. If it's out of bounds from your values, it's an easy no. All right. Thanks once again. Appreciate it. Have yourself a peaceful morning, afternoon, or evening. Keep coming back, guys. We're going to figure this out, I promise. See you!
Ha <laughs> ha!